0: On February 6, 1918, over 40% of women in Britain were given the vote in national elections for the very first time. This episode sets out the way that women over 100 years ago used their sewing skills to help win votes for women. How? How? by using the simple banner to proclaim publicly a message of solidarity and collective strength. Prior to legislation allowing women to vote, British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith required proof that women actually wanted the vote, which led to the formation of large networks of women throughout the country to advocate expanding voting rights. And part of this fascinating history of the women's suffrage movement brimming with courage, artistic endeavour, the use of clever, meaningful design, all bolstered by beautiful needlework is the Artists' Suffrage League and their stunning embroidered banners. So let's get straight into this amazing history. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari Podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Now, I need to clarify some terminology here as we need to know the difference between the word suffragist and suffragette. The word suffragette was first coined in January of 1906 by a British Daily Mail reporter while covering the Women's Social and Political Union and their demonstrations demanding the right to vote. It was originally used as a sexist insult, implying that the movement for women's suffrage was not genuine and should be ridiculed, describing a suffragette as a woman who ought to have more sense. A suffragist believed in peaceful, constitutional campaign methods. However, After they failed to make significant progress, the suffragettes emerged. They were a new generation of activists willing to take direct militant action for the cause. So in 1908, the National Union of Women Suffrage Societies organised a procession through London to show Asquith and others that they did indeed want the vote. And these suffrage campaigns of the early 20th century relied heavily on spectacle and pageantry, creating a flotilla of banners proclaiming their collective will. Thousands of women from all around the country and different walks of life marched peacefully through central London. Apprehensive at first, but fast developing a party-like atmosphere, creating a spectacle of colour as they marched. While these marches were organised to influence public opinion, they were also a very early form of performance art, using women's capacity and creativity as makers, shown throughout history from embroidered medieval heraldry to union mottos, stitching allegiance, protest and solidarity." This rainbow of colour became a potent snapshot into women's history, deliberately using their needlework skills to fashion a new visual vocabulary. And the banners were intentionally handmade, bearing symbolic feminine emblems of birds, flowers and lamps inscribed with women's names, using the fabrics of the drawing room, rich velvets, silks, brocades and satin. They were splendid and beautiful. So just how did these women achieve this? Each local group used large, handheld colourful banners symbolising their uniqueness and value to the community while promoting the ethos of women's suffrage. Suffrage historian Elizabeth Crawford wrote this, It was banners that were recognised at the time as the most significant visual element of that procession. The Daily Express wrote that never... Have such banners been seen in London streets? They were works of art. And Mary Lowndes, chair of the Artists' Suffrage League, founded in 1907, said this Who takes the eye takes all, neatly summarising the need for striking graphics for the banners being made for their marches. Mary wrote this in her banner and banner making pamphlet in 1909. A banner is a thing to float in the wind, to flicker in the breeze, to flirt its colours for your pleasure, to half show and half conceal a device you long to unravel. Choose purple and gold for ambition, red for courage and green for long cherished hopes. Let us go then and make banners as required and let them all be beautiful, she said. And surrounding the speaker's platform, piled in terraced ranks of raw flaming colour, they glowed like a beautiful beautiful piece of vivid coloured tapestry. Mary Lowndes, 1856 to 1929, designed many of these banners. A clergyman's daughter and influential leader in the arts and crafts movement, Mary described herself in the 1891 census as an artist-designer for stained glass. But Mary was also a successful businesswoman, setting up the stained glass firm of Lowndes and Drury with Alfred Drury, providing studio space for skilled craftspeople, enabling artists to carry out their own independent commissions. Yet Mary, a professional artist, businesswoman and employer, was refused a mortgage because she was single. This injustice led her to set up the Artist Suffrage League with the aim of furthering the cause of women's enfranchisement through the work and professional help of artists, both male and female. Their talents were used to create posters, postcards, cartoons, Christmas cards, calendars, designs, illustrations and banners. So for the 1908 procession, 70 to 80 banners were painted, stenciled, patchworked, appliqued, stitched and embroidered by members of the Artists' Suffrage League and others. Some even made use of ribbon embellishments and tassels to be picked up and tossed around by the wind for added spectacle. Mary's simple, uncluttered designs featuring the strong, bold lines of stained glass made the designs highly visible from a distance, lending themselves perfectly to banner making. Suffragette White was first donned en masse in June 1908 for the first monster meeting held in Hyde Park. Participants and there were 30,000 of them, were encouraged to wear white, accessorised with touches of purple and green. The newspaper, Votes for Women, described the event ahead of time by saying, The effect will be a magnificent, moving colour scheme never before seen in London's streets. And they were right. Both Australia and New Zealand participated in the march headed by Vida Goldstein for Australia, who brought the colours back home for her parliamentary seat campaigns, and uh, Lady Anna Stout, wife of New Zealand Chief Justice and former Prime Minister for New Zealand. The Australian banner, with the words, Trust the woman mother, as I have done, was proudly carried by artist Dora Meeson Coates winner of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies Artist Suffrage League poster competition in 1907 along with her husband George Coates and a contingent of women suffragists including Mrs Margaret Fisher, wife of the Australian Prime Minister, Mrs Emily McGowan, wife of the New South Wales Premier and Vida Goldstein, suffrage extraordinaire. The Australian banner celebrated women's suffrage in Australia, depicting a young woman symbolic of Australia with a shield of the Southern Cross at her side, urging the maternal Britannia to grant suffrage as New Zealand had done from 1893 and Australia began to do from 1902. Sadly, while white Australian women succeeded in getting the vote, Australia's Indigenous women were further disenfranchised. But this banner had a great deal more significance for Australia. The growing worldwide uh, campaign for women's franchise coincided with Australia's move towards federation. This new nation felt it could enhance its status by leading the world with progressive legislation, so was deemed a testing ground for idealistic free thinking, hopefully conducive to greater morality and community stability. And, just for fun, the earliest known Australian woman to be indirectly influential in the women's movement, becoming known as the mother of women's suffrage in New South Wales, was Louise Lawson, mother of Henry Lawson. The colours green, white and violet and their initials came to represent the suffrage colours, standing for Give Women Votes, but also symbolising white for purity, purple for dignity and green for hope. Purple was also a colour used to signify royalty. The suffragists used it to imply that they were worthy of having a political opinion. Green also stood for hope in their fight for equality and the potential for political systems to be reborn. White stood for purity both in private and public life. These marches also displayed the development of a new concept we know today as branding, and it was hugely successful for the movement. Their branding was so cohesive that historical documents show women from the other side of the Atlantic communicated and shared strategies. Describing the banners, the morning leader wrote this on the 14th of June 1908 they have created the beauty of blown silk and tossing embroidery the procession was like a medieval festival vivid with simple grandeur alive with ancient dignity the women's library in london holds an album of mary's watercolor sketches for these banners some with swatches of fabrics attached or pencilled notations suggesting the fabrics to be used. The size of 4 foot 6 by 6 foot 6 was deemed large enough, especially if the weather conditions were windy. The main categories of design were geographic, occupation and societies, consciousness-raising and famous women – Depicting such well known women from the past, including Marie Curie, Carolyn Herschel, Queen Elizabeth I, Boadicea, Elizabeth Fry, Queen Victoria, Joan of Arc, Jane Austen, Charlotte and Emily Bronte, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Mary Ann Evans, who wrote as George Eliot, Jenny Lind, and Florence Nightingale, who was the only one of these notable women still alive in 1908. This Valhalla of womanhood, wrote the Sunday Times, sent a powerful visual message that what suffrage campaigners were demanding for citizenship as evidenced by the vote was not really radical, threatening or novel after all. Altogether, the banners summarises visually the range and relevance of the suffrage movement being celebratory, commemorative, inspirational, educational and political all at once. Each local suffrage society displayed emblems that were recognisable to their own town or region with the recommendation from Mary to use The old symbols always when they will serve, but with a new twist for the new thing we are doing. They also harness the power of Greek goddesses in banner imagery, reinforcing that women have always been part of democracy. A diversity of women's occupations were uh, displayed in the banners. Doctors, teachers, business and office workers, artists, actors, musicians, nurses, physical trainers, gardeners, farmers, foragers and homemakers. The Daily Chronicle noted that the beauty of the needlework should convince the most sceptical that it is possible for a woman to use a needle even when she is also wanting the vote. The women's suffrage movement challenged and subverted conventional uh, notions of what it meant to be a woman in the Edwardian period, where embroidery was relegated to the amateur crafts, where women of means were expected to be proficient in sewing for the church, the home, their husbands and family. However, here we now see the art of embroidery very cleverly deployed away from representing feminine embroidery, portrayed as a pillar of weakness, rather using it to be seen as a pillar of strength and seen worldwide. Mary Ann Carter, Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts of America, wrote this in her foreword to the book, Creativity and Persistence, the art that Fueled the fight for women's suffrage. There is perhaps no better example of the arts being used to help transform public opinion in a social or political manner than during the women's suffrage movement. Throughout the long and arduous path to victory, the depiction of women and the different perspectives of of their roles in society and politics were displayed through literature, poetry, fashion, sculpture and illustrations, as well as sharply acidic and intentionally divisive cartoons. Louise Bourgeois once said, The act of sewing is a process of emotional repair. And this period of female emancipation was extremely emotive. So, just how much influence have these banners exerted over the years? The work. The Dinner Party, created by American artist Judy Chicago in 1974-1979, to 1979, is one of the most iconic artworks from the feminist art movement of the 1970s, made to celebrate the richness of women's heritage, surely highly influenced by the visual art of the suffrage movement. Even today, the wearing of white is a powerful symbolic gesture often used to attract media attention, generating inspiration and energy across time and space, but also honouring women who have gone before. This, from the American Library of Congress, expresses the whole rationale for the use of banners suffrage banners transformed traditionally masculine streetscapes into colourful spaces of female empowerment. During parades, banners identified who was marching and why, conveying simple but very effective rhetorical devices to convey disapproval and pressure politicians. The UK Parliament website mentions this. A banner demanding the right to vote for women was unfurled from the Ladies' Gallery in the Chamber of the House of Commons by suffragettes during a protest on 29 October 1908. The banner comprises a printed handbill pasted onto cloth and mounted on bamboo sticks. Suffragettes smuggled the banner into the ladies' gallery, passed it through the grill that covered the window, and unfurled it into the debating chamber. During this incident, two of the women chained themselves to the grill and had to be cut free. The banner is seen as being both a literal and metaphorical representation of the protests made by women behind the grill. Women, using a variety of fabrics and techniques, including skillful embroidery, created some of the most extraordinary, even disturbing, iconic artefacts, many of which are housed in art collections today. The militant, imprisoned suffragettes used the hunger strike as a tool of protest in their struggle for votes, commemorated to this day in the Holloway Banner, bearing the names of 80 suffragettes who went on hunger strikes in the jail in London between 1909 to 1910. This act of defiance caused worried authorities to introduce forced feeding. Emmeline Pankhurst, founder of the Women's Social and Political Union, described this advent. Holloway became a place of horror and torment. Sickening scenes of violence took place almost every hour of the day as the doctors went from cell to cell, performing their hideous office. Public concerns over these shocking revelations of such brutal treatment of women forced the British government to pass the Prisoners' Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act in 1913, becoming known to the suffragettes as the Cat and Mouse Act. Prisoners were released when they became weakened to be re-imprisoned to serve the remainder of their sentence when their health improved, hence cat and mouse. The Suffragette newspaper of 25 July 1913 reported this make-believe conversation in a cartoon entitled The Quality of Mercy. Doctor, this woman is very weak but I think at a pinch she could stand another 25 minutes. The Prime Administrator, 25 minutes, ah well... Never let it be said, we do not temper our injustice with mercy. Let her out in 20. Suffragette prisoners were even rewarded with military style campaign medals upon their release. The poignant quilt style Holloway banner was made up of 80 separate pieces of white linen signed and embroidered in purple thread with the names of the 80 women who went on a hunger strike in the prison from 1909 to 1910. It's bordered by large expanses of green and purple cloth with embroidered text along the top saying women's social and political union worked in art nouveau style. The newspaper Votes for Women described the quilt as being a suffrage linen quilt with a beautiful design in the colours by the well-known artist Anne Macbeth and containing embroidered names of hunger strikers forming an interesting memento that will be sold for £10. The banner was first used in the From Prison to Citizenship Procession held in June of nineteen o ten in London. Embroidered kerchiefs and cloths relating to the suffragette movement included a small embroidered panel worked by Sissy Wilcox when she was a Holloway prisoner in 1911. Worked on white silk measuring 14 by 8.5 centimetres and embroidered in green and purple. The text states this, worked in Holloway, December 1911, Cassie Wilcox, Newcastle. The piece clearly shows several broad arrows later drawn in, referencing this as being regarded as belonging to the British government. Cassie was imprisoned for two months for smashing plate glass windows. From something as simple as a needle, thread and cloth, women created thought-provoking, powerful and inspirational messages showing us the materiality of the history of the women's suffrage movement providing insights into the techniques and materials used to make these banners along with the symbolic meaning of the images colors and styles they used In 2018, celebrations and exhibitions occurred worldwide, commemorating the centenary year for the suffragette movement. And, just as they'd been used in 1918, magnificent hand-embroidered banners were created in their honour 100 years later. This was one of the most rewarding episodes to research. I had no idea about Australia's and New Zealand's involvement that in itself is an area worth further research but what I did find surprising was the worldwide connection at a time when worldwide travel and communication was not easy yet these women did both thank you so much for your time. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have in presenting it to you, but there's more to come in 2022. So do stay tuned and subscribe. Stitch Safaris now reached over seven and a half thousand downloads and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Welp magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at January 2022 by Feedspot. And I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch embroidery and design. Bye for now.